Romans chapter number 11. Romans chapter number 11. Now, I made a screen for this sermon, a slide for it, that was Romans chapter 10, verses 18 through chapter 11, verse 36, LOL. Because <laughs> that's, that's a lot of territory to cover in, in one sermon, in one sermon. And so uh, I opted for this more tasteful uh, approach here on the slide. Romans chapter number 11. And before we give much reading to it, uh, there is a chance we may not get to the Romans chapter 11 at all because I have uh, quite a bit of introductory material uh, to think about. Now, before we begin this big job, uh, let's, let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us, all right? Father, I pray that you would help me as I give this sermon In Acts 13, it says that the church of Antioch was uh, praying and the Holy Spirit said to uh, separate Paul and Barnabas out uh, to serve you in a special way. And has that reading, Father, where it says they were ministering before you. And Father, this sermon is uh, for your honor and for your glory. And I pray that you would help me to keep that in my mind all the time. That I want to present your truth in a way that um, honors you. And the only way I can do that is by just being as close to Scripture as I can. I pray that you free us from any distractions that may come. And, and I pray, Lord, that you, through the, the Holy Spirit, that work will be done in the hearts and lives of everybody here, that maybe people are here and they don't really know they need anything in particular. They may feel like their life is all just peachy. But, Lord, you know what they need, and I pray that you'll give it to them maybe in a direct way or an indirect way. I pray these things in Jesus' most wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Romans chapter 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are kind of dominated by this idea of the Jews. And when you get to Romans chapter 11, kind of the main point is that the Jews and the Gentiles have have kind of traded places. Because for millennia, it was the Jewish people who had exclusive access to God. Now, you guys know what exclusive access is? It's like a backstage pass. This has probably been seven or eight years ago. I bought Valerie. Uh, she, Sandy Patty was coming to Wichita Falls, Texas. Some of you know who Sandy Patty is? Yeah, I only know Sandy Patty because uh, you know, I taught her to sing. And... Uh, <laughs> I only know Sandy Patty because of Valerie, and otherwise I would never even know she existed. But Valerie wanted to go see Sandy Patty, and so it was kind of her farewell tour. She wasn't going to tour anymore. I don't think she tours anymore. But that was kind of the, kind of the hoopla around it. And so she's Terry, she's going to be in Wichita Falls. Can we go? I said, sure, we can go. And she said, and for just a few more bucks, we can get backstage passes, like VIP access, go back there, you know, and you know, I guess get a handshake or a picture or something. I don't know. Autograph? And so we bought these passes, we're all pumped up about it, and then, was it us that got sick or a kid that got sick? All the kids got sick, and I think they all had strep throat. And I said, they'll live. (laughs) (laughs) They're not going to (laughs) die. But Valerie, with her, you know, overwhelming and rightly prioritized maternal love, we had to let it go. We had to let it go. But, you know, if we'd gone down there, we'd, got, we'd had special access to uh, Sandy Patty. 
Now, the Jews had exclusive access to God. From Genesis 12 forward, there's only one group of people on the earth that have this special access to God, and that's the descendants of Abraham and finally the children of Israel. They're God's people, and nobody else is. In fact, God destroys other nations so that the Israelites can benefit from it. Remember that God promised to the Jewish people through Abraham the land of Canaan. This is your land. And Abraham didn't get it. The Jews didn't get it for about, about, I don't know, 450 to 500 years later. By the time they got around to getting it, somebody else had already come along and staked their claim. And then the Jews come in. And they wipe everybody out, or most of them to take over this land. And God says, this is your land. This is what I want you to do. They had exclusive access to God. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans, where he's beginning this idea to tell the Jews that, that in the new covenant, something different has taken place. In chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, we know that one is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but one who is a Jew inwardly, who's had a circumcision of the heart, which has taken place through the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, a, this is a, mind, a mind blower. Paul anticipating the, the mind-blowingness of that statement. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, what, then, what advantage then has the Jew? He says, much in every way, because the Jews had the access to God. They had the oracles of God. So the Jews had this exclusive access for all these centuries. But now in the New Covenant era in the church age, there is a, a, a change, a realignment, you might say. And you have a new relationship between man and God through Christ. And it's not exclusively only for Jews. It is for Jews and Gentiles. Now, the relationship between the Jews and the Christian church is a reoccurring theme of the book of Romans. And there was a a lot of conflict over this in the first 30 years over the relationship of the Old Testament law to the new Christian faith. There's these conflicts. Paul's first letter about this conflict between Judaism and Christianity is actually the New Testament book of Galatians. When you read the book of Galatians, Paul, when Paul writes the letter of Galatians, now there's, there's kind of a debate within Christendom about what New Testament letter was first. Was it 1 Thessalonians or was it Galatians? And that's of the apostolic letters. Now, now, just so everybody knows, I want to say this up front, is uh, the first... New Testament book period is the book of Matthew. You know how we know that? It's the first book of the New Testament. <laughs> it's obvious. No, but if you have a, if you have an old Schofield reference Bible, it'll it'll have the date of its writing at 37 AD. And so the old view was that Matthew was first. That's the old view, Matthew was first. The new view is that Mark was first. Now, that's an error, in my opinion. I think, I think Matthew was first, and Mark is later, because Mark is derived from, from Peter's knowledge. So, but the first apostolic letter is written about 50-51 A.D. Uh, my ESV Bible here says it's 45 to 50, is Galatians. And in that letter of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is kind of wound up. Have you ever written an email when you were mad? And, and, you know, Gmail has this new, this new feature that if you, you can send an email and then you have like a five-second window to bring it back. 
Have you guys ever used that? I have. <laughs> because have you ever hit send on an email and go, no! Well, Google says we love everybody, and so <laughs> you get five seconds to bring it back. And so, maybe it's 30 seconds, but there's this. So Paul writes this, this letter to the Galatians, and he is wound up. He is hot. It's in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. And the issue there is Judaizers, these are Christianish Jews, had come into the churches of Galatia, and they'd been telling the Christians that you were saved by faith plus the addition of certain parts of the Jewish law. One of those being circumcision, and the second being the dietary rules, the things that really made the Jews distinct from Gentiles. And so in Galatians chapter 1, listen to this reading. Galatians 1, verses 6 to 10. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. I am, this is chapter 1, verse 6, Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, he says, if somebody comes and preaches a gospel different than you've already heard, no matter who it is, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. For am I now seeking the approval of man or God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul comes in hot, and he says, I can't believe you people. Have you ever said anything like that? I can't believe you people. You're turning away from the truth. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Paul talks about how he has opposed Peter over this very same issue, the blending of law and grace. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. These are, these are fighting words. So that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, are not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's wound up. He's sticking it in Peter's eye. Chapter 3, verse number 1. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's, he's angry. Now, my favorite part is chapter 5, verse 12. Now, in the authorized version, it's not as punchy as this. It's not as punchy, but listen to what it says. Romans 5, 12. I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I wish that those who were causing the problem in the church over there would castrate themselves. Isn't that great? Theological heat. Paul is wound up. I mean, every other chapter, bam, bam, bam. He is, he's angry. One writer says that Paul sat down and wrote this letter in a fit of rage. 
Now, what's he mad about? Is he mad because people have been misrepresenting him? Is he mad because people have been attributing to him things he didn't say? No, Paul is mad because the gospel is being perverted and corrupted. And sometimes when you go to hear a preacher preach, you're going to hear a preacher sound like he's mad at you and everybody else in the world. Because sometimes the message is just, it's burning in them because they want to correct error. And my friends, there is no more fatal error in this world than the wrong gospel. If you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone as the source of your salvation, if not leaning upon Christ only to save you, you're not going to go to heaven. And anybody that says anything contrary to that, whether they know it or not, they are satanic. It's a satanic error. It's a fatal error. A false gospel will take you to hell. That's why sometimes within Christianity, there's a lot of heat between the different denominations. Because not all Christian denominations are preaching the same gospel. It's not the same gospel. You can go to a lot of different churches probably, and they open the same Bible, sing the same songs, have the same liturgy, but a different gospel. A different gospel is, is damning. It's a fatal, damnable error. And so Paul's first letter is about this gospel thing. And the, and the, and the root issue of it is, is that Judaizers, Jews, were coming into Christian churches and saying it's faith plus works. Faith plus works. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In Galatians it says, Through the works of the law, through the works of the flesh shall no, through the works of the law shall no flesh or no person be justified. Nobody is going to be saved through works. We're saved through faith. Now, that's Galatians. Paul, it's a hotly written letter. Well, Paul has a little time to cool down. If Galatians is written in 50 A.D., he writes Romans in about maybe 60 A.D. So he has 10 years to calm down. (laughs) And then when Paul is calmer, he writes the letter to the Romans. And he's calmer and he's thinking more clearly. Romans is much longer than Galatians. And it has a logical argument that he follows. And so, most people say that the book of Romans is a more thoughtful approach to the same problem. The blending of law and grace. This is why the apostle in Romans, he is, he's really smacking the Jewish idea of salvation through the law in a big way. Now, don't forget that for 2,000 years, it was the Jews, they had exclusive access to God. He chose them to be his people, and they had big blessings because of this election. Romans 3, verses 1 to 2, Paul talks about that. But in spite of their privileged access to God, the Jewish people, over and over again, they reject God. Sometimes they do it corporately as as an entire nation, and sometimes it's just as individuals. But over and over, God reaches out to them, and he is super merciful He is mega merciful. He is abundantly patient and merciful to the Jewish people. And then at the height, at the height of their corruption, 
he sends them another prophet. A prophet unlike any others, he sends to them his own son, Jesus Christ. Take your Bible, look at Isaiah chapter 9. Listen to the reading here. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness, this is, a, this is a, pro, a prophecy of Jesus coming. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. In the most corrupt phase of Judaism, in the most apostate time of Judaism, God sends his son into the darkness. He sends the light of the world into a dark world, and the illumination is magnificent. You know how it is when you go deer hunting. You go out in the dark, you get in your stand, and you turn on that big spotlight and flood the field. (laughs) Is that how you guys do it? (laughs) But we all know about the power of light in a dark place. It just it changes everything. It reveals all kinds of things. So in the midst of the darkest phase of Judaism, God sends the light of the world, Christ, into the world. And Christ comes as a prophet. Now, I was reading my Bible this morning, 2 Kings chapter 4. And there's this story there about Elisha. Now, let's just turn there and look at it. I think this is, this is so... It's so important. 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42. This is Elisha the prophet. Now, the prophets of the Old Testament, they came and they said, we're, we're here to give a message from God, right? And the people say, oh yeah, how do we know you're from God? And they, they, they didn't have a special badge that they could whip out and say, see? What they had was miracles. They did miracles. Now look at this miracle that Elisha does in chapter 4, verse 42. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? And he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And he said it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to, the word, according to the word of the Lord. So here is this situation. There's not enough bread for a hundred dudes. And so the prophet says, God says, give it to them, and there will be plenty. Is there anybody else in the Bible that does that miracle? John chapter 6, Jesus does the very same thing. And so as Jesus comes into the world... As the promised one, John the Baptist baptizes him, and God speaks from heaven and said, This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. And then Jesus preaches the message of the kingdom. He preaches the gospel of the kingdom. And the people are like, How do we know you're really a prophet? What does Jesus do? He feeds the multitudes more than once into the thousands of people. So Jesus comes into the world doing miracles that are our God-level miracles, that are prophet-level miracles. And what do the Jewish people do? They kill him. They conspire to have him murdered. When they rejected 
their Messiah, when they rejected Jesus Christ, that was the end of their privileged status. Jesus tells us this in a parable in the New Testament where he talks about the the man who owns a vineyard and he rents it out to some guys and they keep keep an eye on it for him. And then he would send messengers back periodically to go back and, and check on it and they would kill the messengers. And then finally, the owner says, I'll send my son back to check on the vineyard and they'll have respect for my son. And so they send the son back and the the guys who have the vineyard, they say, look, here's the heir. If we kill him, then the inheritance will be ours. And Jesus says, this is what the Jewish leaders are going to do to me. And that's exactly what they did. God loved Israel so much that in their darkest hour, not their finest hour, but in their darkest hour of corruption, he sent to them his own son. And what did they do to him? They killed him. They conspired. They they lied about him. All Jesus did was he did good. They couldn't find anybody anywhere, anyhow, to step up and say Jesus had done anything bad. They did the the deep background check, and it all turned up nothing. So they had to hire liars to come in and lie and pervert what Jesus said. Jesus was a man without sin, and they killed him. And when the Jews killed him, that privileged status they enjoyed comes to an end. Now, it takes a little while for it to to really come to be, but the door to the Jews is closed except for a little crack. No longer do they have unbridled access to God. Now they just get a little bit. And they brought it on themselves because they rejected their Messiah. And now this door... It's like our doors back there. you got one door says Jews, one door says Gentile. The Jew, the Jew door gets open just barely. But then the door that says Gentiles is open wide. Open wide. And in the book of Acts, you begin to see this shift. Peter, in the book of Acts, after Pentecost, in Acts chapter 10, he has this visitation, this dream that involves Cornelius. And in the dream that Peter has, it's a dream about the forbidden foods. The Jews had a strict dietary, uh, dietary rules, and they, they couldn't eat any, in just anything. They could only eat certain things. One of the most saddest things about the Jewish diet was if they ate a fish, it had to have a scale. You know what that means? No catfish. Can you believe no catfish? No hush puppies. No bacon-wrapped jalapeno poppers. (laughs) And in this dream Peter has, a sheet is there, and there's all these unclean animals, and an angel says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, I have never eaten anything unclean. But he says, do it anyway. Three times Peter has this dream, and then Peter wakes up from the dream, and as he's sitting on the side of the bed, scratching his head, thinking, what is the meaning of this? There's a knock on the door downstairs. It's some Gentile dudes who've come to a Jewish home where they really weren't allowed to be, usually. And so he want to see Peter. And so Peter goes and sees Cornelius, and you see the Holy Spirit fall upon the Gentiles, just as the Holy Spirit had fallen upon the Jews at Pentecost. Now, sometimes our charismatic friends 
will say that, uh, you know, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit always follows being baptized in water. But in Cornelius' example, in Cornelius' case, Cornelius, they receive the Holy Spirit, then they're baptized later. Which kind of shoots that theory in the foot, in my opinion. It always has to follow baptism. So that's in Acts chapter 10. Then in Acts chapter 11, a new center of Christianity emerges in the Gentile city of Antioch. And then in Acts 15, there's a, a big meeting in Acts 15 because the Jewish Christians, they're, 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 they're upset because the Gentiles are using their Bible, singing their songs, the Psalms, but are not following all the law of Moses. And so in Acts 15, they have a big, a big church conference meeting about this where all the apostles who are still living show up and, and representatives from different churches show up to talk about this. And the, the decision of the church at Jerusalem is that circumcision has nothing to do with salvation. So you can see this big shift away from Judaism to the Gentiles. Now the most notable shift, in my opinion, in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 18 where you have the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul, he, he kind of did ministry the same way, always doing things the same way. When he would go to a town, to a city, he would go to the synagogue because he was a Jew. And in the synagogue, they were reading the Old Testament, praying and singing the Psalms in the, old, in the synagogues. And so Paul would go to the synagogues. And because these people were already monotheistic, living in the one true God, Paul would spend time there, and then Paul would start talking to them about the Messiah and say that the Messiah had actually come already, and his name was Jesus Christ. And he would, they would say, he would talk about what Jesus did, that he died on the cross, and that he rose again on the third day. Now, the resurrection is a part of Jewish theology. And so Paul would go there, and he would talk to them. Now, the Jews loved it when Paul would do that. Sometimes after he got done talking, they'd say, let's go out back. And they'd throw big rocks at him. <laughs> Sometimes they'd say, hey, come over to my house for dinner. And he'd go out in the backyard, and instead of there being a, a grill with roast lamb on it, they had some sticks and clubs, and they'd beat him up with it. They loved it when Paul did that. <laughs> they hated this message of Christ. You say, you're being a little extreme. I am being a little bit extreme because not all the Jews treated, treated Paul that way. Some of the Jews would say, you know what? I think that's true. I think what you've said is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And some of those Jews would believe. But when they believed, when they embraced Christianity, they got kicked out of the synagogues. They got kicked out of their Jewish communities. And this was ongoing in Paul's life for 20 years. But finally, Acts chapter 18. Paul is in the synagogue near Athens. And he talks to him about Jesus being the Messiah. And after he gets done talking about the resurrection of Christ, they revile him. They mock him. They yell at him. They demean him. They diss him. And Paul gets so angry that he gets up and shakes himself all over and says, I'm done with y'all. I'm going to the Gentiles. And there's a big shift 
in Paul's ministry. Because this door to the Jews is just a crack. Now it's a sliver. Now it's a sliver. By 65 AD, the guy who is primarily consumed with Jewish evangelism is the Apostle Peter. Peter writes his last letters, First and Second Peter. Peter dies between 65 and 68 AD. Just a crack. Then 70 AD comes. Titus Vespucian sweeps in from the north. Destroys the city of Rome in a mighty battle. He tells his Roman soldiers, he says, these Jews in, in the mortar of the tabernacle, of the temple, in between the blocks, the Jews have hidden gold in between those seams. All those seams are filled with gold. He tells them this so that they will go in there and break apart all those stones to get to the gold. Because he says, whatever spoil is there is yours. They go in there and they destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. They destroyed Jerusalem. And Judaism has never recovered from that. And what you see now for the last 2,000 years-ish is that there are way more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. It doesn't mean there are no Jewish Christians because the apostle is going to say this in chapter 11. He's going to say that has God rejected his people? Has God cast them away? No, Paul says. I am myself am a Jew, a son of Benjamin. But he goes through, and he, in, in chapter 11, Paul talks about that now there is Gentile priority in Jewish. I don't know what the opposite of priority would be. Not minority, that'd be the wrong word, I think. Let's say it like this The main emphasis is no longer the Jewish people. But it's a different people. It's the Gentile people. And then in this church age, you have this massive expanse of Christianity amongst Gentiles, non-Jews. But Paul says in Romans 11, God has not rejected his people totally because he says he has saved for himself for a remnant. I took you back to 2 Kings chapter 4 a minute ago. But the apostle uses this example, this illustration, from 1 Kings 19, where Elijah, he's a prophet in Israel, and he's running for his life from King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And he is really feeling sorry for himself. Have you ever felt sorry for yourself as a Christian? And said, hey, here I am trying to serve the Lord, and it's all going sideways. And And Elijah feels the same way. And so Elijah feels sorry for himself. When you feel sorry for yourself, your whole perspective of life is twisted. You can't can't tell tell which ends up. And so Elijah says to God, he says, God, I'm the only dude left that loves you. I'm the only guy in the whole kingdom who's not worshiping Baal. And the Lord says, that's not true. Paul quotes it, Paul quotes, puts it like this in Romans chapter 11. God says, I have reserved for myself, I have chosen for myself 
Talk about Elijah. God speaking to us, Paul says, 7,000 people who have never bowed the knee to Baal. Now, this is, a, this is a really a, a great truth because there's always more Christians than you think there are. There are always more Christians than you think you are. Sometimes we look out there, you go to Walmart, and you just see a sea of sinners, right? <laughs> well, within that sea of sinners, there are some who have been redeemed. Some who have become Christ followers. And sometimes it surprises us. You ever been working with somebody? Somebody who's a decent enough person, you know. They're, they're not the worst, they're not the best. But there's something about them you kind of you kind of like a little bit, and you tolerate them better than other people. Then one day, out of the blue, you're talking about the Bible, and they say, yeah, I was reading the Bible too. Or they talk about my church, right? And you're like, do you go to church? Now, i got to be careful, be quick to say this, is that if you tell your friends you're a Christian and they die of a heart attack, you're probably not living right. <laughs> the response should be, oh, that makes sense now. Now that explains why you are the way you are. So there's this massive shift. This great door is open to the Gentiles. And there's this change. And this is what chapter 11 is about. But we'll have to talk about it next Sunday because we're really out of time. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that uh, this is all introductory stuff, Lord, and maybe something I've said here, maybe something that you have said through the Holy Spirit will do a, a big work in the hearts and lives of these people. Lord, as we go into chapter number 11, there's lots of things to look at and think about. We pray that you'd help us to understand them with great clarity. And Lord, help us. I think we're all, I think we're all Gentiles here. I don't know if there are any Jewish people here. But it doesn't matter what we are ethnically. It matters what we are spiritually. Help those of us who have come to have faith in Christ. Those who have become believers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help us to rejoice in that and love it. I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.